Well, let's go ahead and begin our study this morning. We are in the 26th chapter of the Confession of Faith, uh, dealing with the church. And this morning as we continue, we're going to deal with the subject of the true head of the church, the true head of the church. For many of us today, of course, this study will not come as a surprise to those who are believers of who the true head of the church is, uh, but it's always good to be reminded and also good to see from Scripture how clearly and definitively the true head of the church is declared. Uh, there in chapter 26 of the Confession, let's look at paragraph 4 and we'll read through the paragraph. It says, The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition that exalts himself in the church against Christ. And all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming." Uh, I have been teasing about this particular paragraph coming for a number of weeks because this is probably one of the strongest and most dogmatic assertions that the confession writers make with regard to who the Antichrist is, uh, who they determined and declared uh, this Antichrist to be. And we clearly see that in their minds uh, and in their, as far as their convictions went, uh, they were very serious in their declaration that the Pope was actually the Antichrist. Now, as we learned this morning, uh, I do not believe, and I'll, I'll just state the position, I do not believe we can dogmatically state that uh, without any qualifications and just simply say it. But we do need to take in mind and take into consideration that at the time that the confession writers wrote this, the pull and the strength and the breadth of what the Catholic Church was doing uh, was it would have been easy to come to that conclusion. Uh, now we are of course living generations later. Some things have changed. Other religions, other denominations, other teachings, other philosophies have seemingly rose to the top. And we hear every year somebody decides they want to dogmatically declare who the Antichrist is. And in their articles of faith, they will also declare here's who we think it is. Uh, throughout the years, it has been, people have declared it's been world leaders. Uh, it's been particular, I've heard people say that, um, that at one point, it could have been even one of the presidents of the United States. There, there's a lot that goes into it. So we've got to be careful about these, these dogmatic statements that declare this to be so. But the confession writers were very intentional about this. And I do like the way that they declared, first of all, what the truth is, what the truth that cannot be argued with. And that is the first phrase, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. That pretty much settles it. So that anything or anyone, any entity, any individual that's named after that really is not the head at all. But they did, in their confession, wrote it very strongly that this is what they believed. So the authors of the confession wanted to protect believers, especially at that time, from the false claims of the Roman Catholic Church and specifically the teachings of the Pope. 
and what they were insistent upon. And they were uh, very strong with this. And if you go back and you read some of the writings and some of the sermons that were uh, being preached during the days in which the confession writers were, were taking from the Westminster and they were putting together the confession of faith and pulling these things together, you could hear how strongly they felt about this. Now, this was not a passing fancy that they said, well, we kind of think he might be. We kind of think this is. They were like, no, look at the influence that the Catholic Church is having even in their societies. And especially uh, there in England, it was, it was prevalent. It was running throughout Europe. And that's what most of the churches and the belief they were taking. Uh, so we want to be careful not to say, how dare somebody take such a strong statement and make such a dogmatic assertion uh, when we do realize that uh, we, even in our day and age, um, are very dogmatic about things that maybe we're not so sure of either. Uh, there are things that they become a conviction to us. They become something that we, uh, we hold dear to ourselves, but maybe other people don't hold that so dear. So what we can take from this this morning is we very clearly see uh, this first heading. There really only be two headings this morning. Uh, first of all, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true head of the church. Uh, now let's go back to Colossians 1 and look at verse 12. These are verses we've been working through over the last couple of weeks because uh, a couple of the paragraphs are continuing to use, especially Ephesians and Colossians, to declare this truth uh, that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Uh, we'll pick up reading in Colossians 1 verse 12. Paul writes these words, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven. And that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Now, Paul took it one step further, even saying, Jesus Christ is not just the head of the church. He is the head of all things. He is supreme over all things. He is supreme over the created order. He is supreme over not only the creation physically, but the new creation, the new creation that's found in Christ, that salvation, that saving grace that we know. He's also declared to be he which is supreme in the redemption of his people. So we understand that this insistent by the confession writers was primarily to insist that biblically speaking, this is without any question. That Christ is the head of the church. And that's not just the universal church, although that is the, the overwrite all the believers from all ages. Jesus Christ is the head over the universal church, visible and invisible, but he's also the head, of, head over every local church. Uh, now, there is order in churches with pastors and elders, and we know the offices, pastors, elders, and deacons. We know all those things. But those are, they are not the head. They are not head over the church. Jesus Christ is. 
Uh, they are under shepherds. Uh, the pastors and elders, they are under shepherds, but they're not the head. It would be a wrong declaration for a pastor to say in any capacity that I am the head of the church. It would be wrong for him to say I'm the head of the universal church, certainly, but it would also be wrong for him to say I'm the head of this local church. Jesus Christ is the head, supreme over all things. So the confession writers, again, we can look and appreciate with what they're saying. And so that's exactly what they are seeking to establish. So we see that uh, in Colossians uh, 1, verses 12 through 18. You'll notice that some other familiar scriptures um, are footnoted uh, there, the first part of that. We also see Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And we know these are declarations that Jesus himself made uh, regarding this. And we'll just quickly read these. Matthew 28, again, these are not going to be new verses for most of you. Uh, but this is the familiar ending of the book of Matthew. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Jesus himself declared, all power is given unto me. He, without apology, declares, I am the one who has the power. I am the one who is the head. He's not asking for permission. He's not saying, if you'll have me to be the head, then I'll be the head. He's not asking, if you will have me be your Lord, then I'll be Lord over you. He says, I am the head. I am the Lord. And all power has been given unto me with exclusive rights. He's not sharing his glory with anyone. He's not sharing his glory with anybody who claims to, in any way, shape, or form, be on the same level as a representation or actually in office. Now, that's why the confession writers began to say, what does the Pope do? The Pope declares some of those things. He actually will say, and continues to this day will say, that he is the head of the church. Now, he's not making a distinction. He says, I am a representative head of the church. He refers to him, and the Catholic Church refers to him as a vicar. And we'll talk about that in a moment. This is not a light declaration. That is actually a blasphemous declaration. For the Pope to declare he's the head over any part of the church is blasphemy. Now again, the, the confession writers saw this happening. Now we could go down a lot of lists of a lot of different religions and we could point out every single step about what's wrong with them. We could probably find an equivalent to a pope where somebody, either an individual, claims to be the head. Uh, by the way, most of those things where somebody claims to be the head is usually a cult. Now, you understand what I'm saying. How far does cult go? You can have a person who stands up in front of you and holds a Bible in their hand, and if they start declaring that they're the head, folks, you're in a cult. I don't care what's on the sign. You're in a cult. He's not the head. Or in some cases, she is not the head. There are religions out there that are solely based upon the writings of another individual as their sole authority. They are declaring to be the representation of who the head is. So 
the Pope for the confession writers was the one who was very much uh, in the, uh, the forefront. Now, a lot of Reformed Baptist churches have taken the position to simply say, all right, we just don't agree with such a strong statement. We're not going to state, we, we need to strike that from our confession. And we need to say, look, we're just going to take that statement out. We're going to keep the paragraph the way it is. Just declare that Jesus Christ is the head of the church and just leave it at that. And I suppose we could do that. Or we could learn the lesson from what this might teach us about anybody. No matter if it's the Pope who declares themselves in this type of authority and in this type of a position. So it may not be the Pope, but even the Antichrist himself, when you study through Scripture, you find out that person is going to put themselves on a level that is equal or above Jesus Christ. So that's what the Bible refers to, the spirit of Antichrist, which is already here. Now, I don't have to convince you as believers today that the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well and has been going for a long time and is going to continue to increase. The spirit of Antichrist is already present, even if the person is not, and even if it turns out that it's not the Pope, the spirit of Antichrist is already among us. And then, of course, Ephesians 4, I think we looked at this last week. This is Paul, of course, to the church at Ephesus. And we'll just look at two verses there because we've covered, we've covered most of these verses over the last few weeks. But Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, Paul makes a similar uh, statement with regard to um, Christ and his headship. Uh, Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 11 and 12. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now you notice there were gifts giving, given, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. They were given for the exclusive purpose of the perfecting of the saints. Not the perfecting, perfection is found in those individuals but they are perfecting from the standpoint in the body of Christ. In other words, Christ is the perfection. Christ is the, 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 the head of the body. And we are, and the, 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 those gifts that were given to the church were for that perfecting, which leads to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God into a perfect man unto the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. So again, we see Christ is the true head of the church. So on the natural second heading, and again, we've already established this, the Pope in Rome is not, or Rome or any other place for that matter, is not in any sense, emphasis on in any sense, the head of the church. His quote-unquote ministry, whatever you want to call it, has nothing to do with me. He doesn't act as my representative in any way, shape, or form. I would never, ever dare pray to him. I would never, ever, ever ask him to forgive my sins. I would never travel thousands of miles to line the streets to worship him like millions of people do each and every year. He is a mere man who is promoting and propagating a false gospel, no two ways about it. That's not hateful, that's just truth. 
He is not in any sense the head. He claims to be the head of the Catholic Church, and he really is not even that. But in their hierarchy, that's how they consider him. They do truly hold him at a level that is equivalent with Christ. And by the way, right alongside of Christ and the Pope is Mary. So all three of them, including Mary, are at that level to where these are the three. But we understand that the Pope asserts this position that has been given to him by the Catholic Church for many, many generations. So you'll notice what the confession says. We see that Jesus Christ was by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, the institution, the order of government of the church, which we'll start getting into next week, neither is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. That means it is given by the authority of he who has the, of the right to give that authority. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, that exalts himself in the church against Christ. So the confession writers assert, they make the assertion that the Pope is in no sense the head of the church. And again, remember we learned the word Catholic. They took on the word Catholic. The Church of Rome used to just be known as the Church of Rome. When it started, it was not the Roman Catholic Church. It was the Church of Rome. Catholic, we've learned, simply means universal. That's why when you read some of the, like even the Apostles' Creeds and some of the old creeds, you will see, and the old Puritan writers, they will make reference to the Catholic Church. They're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. They're not even hinting at the Roman Catholic Catholic means universal as part of the entire body of Christ. For lack of a better term, the Catholic Church, the, the church at Rome rather, they hijacked the name Catholic. And they added that into their name and become known as the Roman Catholic Church. So their claim of being head of the Catholic Church, just in a sense, just think about this from a common sense reasoning standpoint. If the word Catholic means a universal church from everybody, from everybody who's ever lived, all believers from every ages, a man stands up and now declares through that authority, I am the head of the Catholic church. There's a declaration, I'm the head of the universal church. Everybody who's ever lived that's in the faith, in the body, I am the head. That's why the confession writers were so strong about how they approach this. They didn't look at this as something minor. You do realize that of all the denominations and religions in the world, still to this day, with the rise of everything that's been happening, there are still more who belong to the Church of Rome than any other denomination in the world. By far, it is still the largest numbers of people. Our minds have a hard time grasping how many people are on this planet. And we see, of course, what media wants you to see, right? Here's, here's the real problem over here. This religion is the real problem over here. But by per capita, per numbers, there are more people in the Roman Catholic Church as their matter of faith than any other religion in the world. It has... It has fingers that go everywhere. That's why they were so strong about what they were saying. So for the Pope to claim that he is the head is an outright blasphemous declaration against Christ. So in this paragraph, 
the Roman church, the church at Rome, assumed the term Catholic into its name, and we would refute that. We would outright refute that, that you don't even have the, 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 the church of Rome doesn't even have the right to use the name Catholic in it. Not by its purest sense of definition. It stems, this idea of Catholic stems from the assertion and the teaching in the church at Rome that the Pope is the vicar of Christ. Now you can, you can fact check me on this. He is declared to be, and he has the title of what's called the vicar of Christ. Which simply means he is exclusively and solely the representative of Christ on earth and is endowed with the same authority and same power. That's in the Catholic teachings. I'm not making this up. So when you see the Pope, this is not just a figurehead. This man by the Catholic Church is considered to be the vicar of Christ, the actual representative. So if someone says to you, how do we see Christ on this earth? Do you know what they say? Look to the Pope. That's your representative. That's the representative. He is the exclusive one. Now, of course, popes are human. They've come and gone. Obviously, the Pope they were writing about when they put together the confessions is not the same Pope today. They have passed on. They've died. Others have come. You see the grand production, if some of you are aware of this, when they have to install a new pope and they stand outside this cathedral and they wait for smoke to billow. It is the most foolish thing I've ever seen in my life. Apologies to Catholic friends that I know, but it's the most foolish thing that I think I've ever seen. The level of worship as if that person that's being chosen to that position has any thing at all to do with Christ because he doesn't any person who claims equality with Christ is a blasphemer there's no two ways about it the world in the 17th century and if you want to read this for yourself and start studying in 17th century dealing with the Puritans they were very very familiar with this uh, they, did not they did not live to make sure that their message was acceptable. You think it's unpopular now to be dogmatic about the Pope. Can you imagine how unpopular it was during the Puritans' days when they said, this ruler, this Pope, that's the Antichrist? You see, the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ is the head has never been a popular message. We get this idea that, oh, I want to go back to the old days when Christ was solely supreme and head over all. Point me to a time when that was the case. It never has been. There's never been an entire world that says we recognize Jesus Christ as the only head. It doesn't exist at this point. It has never existed. But when the Puritans, who were very familiar with this, they were not just familiar with the Catholic Church, so to speak, or the Church of Rome, but they were familiar with Romanism. What you have to remember is the, the Roman aspect of this cannot go unnoticed into its name. The church at Rome. Think about throughout Scripture. Think about what the church at Rome was doing, even in our Bibles, towards the people of that way. People, think about what the Caesars were doing. Think about how they were putting Christians in coliseums for sport, putting them unarmed against lions for entertainment. 
Think about Nero, who's lining the streets and using Christians as human torches. People say, I don't associate that with Rome at all. You should. You, you, you can't have one without the other. You can't be the church of Rome and say, well, we have nothing to do with Romanism. Read the Puritans and see if they made the connection. See if even writers such as Spurgeon, who referred to them as the church at Rome, church of Rome, he didn't refer to them in most often as the Roman Catholic church. He referred to them as the church at Rome because that's how important we can't separate these. Even the, mid, even the medieval church for the Puritan, what the medieval church looked like was not a distant memory as it is for us. This is not an insult to any of us, but most of us are not familiar even with the medieval church. We're not even familiar with 17th century church. We're only, we're only truly familiar, most of us are only familiar with the modern church or the modern day church. And we think this is how the church has always been. The church has gone through stages. It's gone through differences. But we understand that they did know these claims that were being offered. They also knew that not only were these claims being given, they also knew that the Church of Rome was not convinced that it was just going to be about the church. What will be really interesting for you to read is read about the governmental, and again, this is not so prevalent now, but read about the governmental and the, the militant side of the church at Rome and go read about what its ambitions were. It's more than just a church in a sense. This is what the Puritans were familiar with. The boldness of the Pope is not just a thing of the past. It is still what's believed to this day. Now, if I believe, let me give you, let me give you a couple of assumptions. If I believe that the Pope is actually the representative of Christ in this earth, and I truly believe that, then I'm going to trust what he says, right? So when he changes his stance on sinful things and says that certain activities are no longer sinful or that we should now approve of, let's, let's take care of the elephant in the room. We should approve of same-sex marriages. Do you realize they're taking that as a direct message from God and you want to know why it's being so accepted with any, any out any resistance? Because there are so many that are looking towards the Pope as saying if the Pope delivered it, that's what God wants now. Even though they can't find it in Scripture because for the most part, the Church of Rome cares nothing about Scripture. They only care about the tradition and their books. And I'm not trying to be hateful today, folks. I'm just trying to educate us on the truth. And this is why when you are dealing and talking with Catholic friends, do not be surprised at what you're hearing. And also don't be surprised that things sound similar. Terms, the same terms are being used, but they don't have the same meaning. There's not a denial of Christ in the Catholic Church or the Church of Rome, whichever one to refer to it. But they have a different view. So does every other false religion. In the very catechism of the Catholic Church, now again, this is often asked a question. This is one of the accusations against us Reformed Baptists is we have what's called the Baptist Catechism, and there's actually one for your kids out there on the entryway. And if you've got kids, you ought to put your kids through that. It'll be a great help to them. The, the idea of the catechism, we know that the, the Catholic Church has used that. 
But their catechisms are also the catechisms that describe the structure, the order, also of how the Catholic Church is to function. Now, I don't have a copy of that. I simply have some excerpts from it. I want to read to you just one. Now, this is, the, this is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It was written and updated in 1994. I know for many of you, that's an eternity ago. But 1994 says this, and it speaks about the subject of the primacy of the Pope. And this is in paragraphs. You think we have a lot of paragraphs. Paragraphs 881 and 882. So when you all say it's going to take us a year or a decade to get through our confession of faith, this is paragraph 881 and 882, just in the section on the primacy of the Pope. The Pope, here's word for word, is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity both of the bishops and of the whole company of the faithful. The Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ and as pastor of the entire church, has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise, get this, unhindered. Did we just not read in Colossians 1 that all power and all authority has been given unto Christ? And is, is that paragraph not a blasphemous statement? Preacher, you can't be that hard and harsh in these days. We need to all get along. Not when it's heresy like this. If, if, you, if, if you come to this church because we're going to get along with everybody just to keep the peace, you're in the wrong place. And I don't mean to be offensive. But you can't compromise on, you can't compromise on false. And if someone tells me, well, yeah, it's just an opinion. No, if you in any way, shape, or form think any part of that paragraph that I just read is right, your, your foundation and your doctrine is wrong. There's not, a, there's not a true statement in that entire paragraph. The perpetual, which means continual. Remember we did the perpetuity last week? That means God's everlasting, visible source and foundation of unity. I beg your pardon, but I am not unified to the body of Christ by the Pope in any way, shape, or form. He's not holding me in anything. And I'm not going to worship him, right? But he says that that Roman, by the reason of his office as vicar or representative and pastor of the entire church. Bet you didn't know the Pope was your pastor today, did you? Coin to the church, he's your pastor of the whole universal church. And not even only just a pastor, but he also has full, supreme, universal power over the whole church. And he can always exercise unhindered. That's why whenever the Pope says something, it's taken as law. It's taken as, it's taken as truth. And we look around and we say, why are so many people succumbing to this? I told you. Cult is cult. You can call it what you want. You can say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. We're all Christians here. Are we really? Are you really a Christian if you have faith in Jesus Christ to save you and the Pope? Are you really in the faith? Are you really a Christian? Are you really a believer? I would say absolutely 100% you can't possibly be. There's no way you can have faith in Jesus Christ and the Pope. 
for any of your salvation or for any of your existence or for any of your prayers or for the forgiveness of your sins, there is absolutely positively no, I have no part in the Pope or the church at Rome. Period. None. Zero. That is the position that a Bible-believing church takes and it will be met with hatred. It's the kind of statements you make that get you banned off social media because you say you can't say that. Then ban us, right? Ban us. God's Word's not going to be hindered by whether you're on Facebook or YouTube or Twitter or whatever. It doesn't matter. But you cannot just say, well, let's just all get along and they're all Christians. No, we're not all Christians. So there there is a grand difference in what's happening here. Now, it wasn't just the Baptist Confession of Faith writers. The writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy Declaration, which we studied a couple weeks ago, and the London Baptist Confession all agreed in their interpretation that the Pope is the Antichrist. This was not just a handful of guys who got together over coffee or tea one day and said, you know what, let's just arbitrarily call the Pope the Antichrist. This was a number of men along with a number of different congregations who were all part of what was happening here, and they were all in agreement. And what they declared is what the second half of this paragraph mentions, and it's footnoted. It's 2 Thessalonians 2, and they have footnoted verses 2 through 9. But let's just turn over there quickly. Again, we're not doing... Again, this, every time this passage is read, this is going to bring up all kinds of end times questions. Let me just say, today's not the day to answer all the end time questions, okay? Because number one, like I said Wednesday night, we don't have all the answers. As educated as you are and that I am, we do not have all the end time answers. There's a lot of good churches and good men who even differ on how it's all going to end. But this this is the text that they used and footnoted to declare... The final statement there that all that is called God whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. They declared that the Antichrist or the Pope is the man of lawlessness, which is mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 2. And let's read just the first, uh, let's just read the first nine verses. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. Now, let me just stop there. There's, biblically, Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica and he says, this is what's coming. The day of Christ is at hand. And he says very clearly that the day is going to come. He said, there's got to be a day that will come, that there's going to be a falling away first. The man of sin will be revealed. A person that opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, those paragraphs we read in that that Catholic catechism, that's exactly what they're claiming the Pope is. Opposing and exalting. Okay? Again, this this is the rationale for how the confession writers of all three of those, Savoy Declaration, the Westminster, and the London Baptist came to the conclusions. 
Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. Isn't it interesting that Paul, those many years ago, was talking to the church about the things that were going to happen? We have men stand up today and act like they're announcing something brand new. Bet you've never heard this before. Really? The Apostle Paul said, I've been telling you these things. I've been telling you there's a day coming. I've been telling you about the lawlessness. I've been telling you about a falling away. I've been telling you about the man of perdition. Paul was talking about this. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity. Now the mystery of iniquity, again, is a reference to one who is considered wicked. So one that opposes himself against or over God is an antichrist. Anybody who says that's an antichrist. They may not be the antichrist, but they are an antichrist. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. You mean God actually sent a delusion for people to believe a lie? I thought this was all like just free will and I just get to do whatever I want. God actually dilutes? It's a pretty powerful statement. That they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you brethren beloved of the Lord because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtain of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. Contextually, what's he talking about? Stand fast against those who oppose themselves and exalt themselves above the true and living God. That these events that are going to unfold, these things that are going to happen, all these moving parts. He says, I want you to remain steadfast in the truth. Sometimes people get irritated with me because I won't engage in a giant end times discussion with them. And they're almost like, well, you're a pastor. How do you not know these things? I would warn you about being so dogmatic about what you think you know the end is going to be. And how it's all going to unfold. And simply just declaring, well, I know the Bible teaches this. I know this. I Be careful of the I knows. Say, now here's the things I do know the Bible says. Here's the things I know Paul was dealing with. His point in that chapter was not for him to necessarily tell them and reveal to them who it is, but that these are the things you should be aware of. So again, like I began to study today by saying, even if the Pope isn't, we're still learning a lesson about what to look for, right? Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. I love the way this chapter ends. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work and word. Every good word and work. Think about that. Be comforted the fact that you know the truth. Be comforted that you don't care 
when the smoke comes out of that smokestack, out of that chimney. It means nothing to you if a new pope is selected. I'm not running home after church or after work one day to see who gets installed as the new pope when that day comes. It doesn't matter. Because that is an opposition to the true Christ. People have said that. Is it possible for somebody who is a solid doctrinally and to stand on Bible truth alone? Is it possible to be in cohesion in a Catholic type ministry, the Church of Rome ministry? There's no way. We're not even on the same playing field. Now again, I don't mean any disrespect by what I'm getting ready to say. This was one of the what began the problem that happened during the Billy Graham years. And part of the problem was, is when he started off, he was very, and again, don't, don't take what I'm saying about free will and choice and walking in an eye. I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm simply talking about how he started handling people who came forward. What he started to do is instead of counseling themselves, they would give them pamphlets and then say, go back to your church even if you were going back to a Catholic church, they were not being followed up with properly. They were being sent back, back into the false doctrine. Right? You, th- those two are like oil and water. You can't put them together and claim they're the same. Okay, I'm not, again, I am not disputing what or who or how God used the ministry of Billy Graham. So, Just get that out there. I'm just telling you, that's factual what started to happen. People were told, it doesn't matter if you're Catholic. It doesn't matter what you believe. Then other counselors came in who actually were Catholic counselors. So there were Catholic counselors that they began to say, okay, what is your denomination? Oh, you're Catholic? We're going to send you with a Catholic counselor. You can see the problem, I think, without me saying anything further. So... When John speaks of the spirit of Antichrist, Paul spoke of it. In 1 John 2, 1 John 4, 2 John 1, John, all three of those accounts, talks about the spirit of Antichrist, right? The spirit. So when we think about the spirit of Antichrist, the Pope immediately comes to mind. Now, regardless of the identity of whoever the end-time Antichrist will be, the Pope's claim to be the supreme ruler of the universal church, that we can dogmatically deny. So I can't dogmatically say he's the Antichrist, but I can, without apology, dogmatically say with 100% certainty, he is not the head of the universal church. He's not the head of this church. He's not the head of any church. That we can say dogmatically. Again, whether he's uh, the Antichrist in the end, here's the, here's the thing. We are going to find out. We're going to find out how it's all going to come to an end. We're going to find out, is, do we, does it all end before a certain time? Do we have to go through a midpoint? Do we not go through it? Are we going through it now? End times then, end time. We're going to find out. But I've taken the position that the Apostle Paul took. I've taken the position that Jesus Christ said to look for his coming, look for his return. That's exactly what I'm doing. And we ought to be under the impression that if we have to go through tribulation, if we have to go through struggle, if we got to go through strife, we know at the end of that, Jesus Christ is the reward. 
right, in all the arguments saying God would never let his people go through this type of suffering, yet we, we get the benefits of Jesus Christ going to the cross and suffering and bleeding and dying for our sins, and we say he would never let his people suffer. Tell that to the Fox books and Book of Martyrs. Tell that to them. Tell that to families who lost someone today standing for Christ. Don't give me this idea that Christ would never allow us to suffer. The reality is you are going to suffer for your faith. How do I know that? Jesus himself said, the world's going to hate you. So it's clear that the Pope who does accept blasphemous titles and upholds a false gospel and doctrines is not the person that the world thinks he is. I've, over listened, I've overheard conversations before. They actually, there are people who actually think that he is God by the way they talk. So the only thing we can debate today is, is he the actual Antichrist? And that's really not the point because we do know that at the end of the age, it will be revealed. We won't be guessing. We'll actually know. So at this point, the confession is now poised to transition to the focus from the universal church primarily to the local church. So for the next number of paragraphs, from paragraphs 5 through 15, we're going to focus primarily on the local church, on its structure, how that the local church is this visible manifestation of the universal rule of Christ, who governs by his spirit, of course, through the offices. And if we are a true local church, so if, if this church is a true church it's only because we are part of the universal church that is under the sovereign authority of jesus christ he is the true head of the church and he's the only head all right so i hope that'll help us this morning